couple of months ago, my Bible reading was in Psalm 119, and this verse stood out to me. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. My initial thought was, I mean, I, that I want, obviously I want that to be true of me. I want to have such a love for the Lord and such a love for His Word that when I look around the world and I see people who don't obey the Lord, who don't keep His Word, that it breaks my heart and causes me to cry, that my heart breaks and my eyes leak over it. And as I thought about it, though, I, I wondered how accurate that was. Is that something that's really true of me? I mean, if it's somebody I know and love, and I see them breaking God's Word, living in ways inconsistent with being a disciple of Jesus, it certainly breaks my heart and causes my eyes to leak. As I think about the unreached and the faraway nations who will likely live and die, never get the opportunity to even hear about Jesus, much less break God's Word in a way that they, they knew what they were doing, that breaks my heart and causes my eyes to leak. But the more I thought about it, the, the reality is I don't know if I can really honestly say that just as a general rule, looking at the world, going out, about, out and about in our community, if just seeing the lostness of our town, seeing people who break God's law that I don't know, um, if it really breaks my heart and, and causes my eye to leak. And that bothered me, because I think that's probably how we're supposed to be. I think probably what we see in God's Word from the psalmist is an example of what we all are supposed to be like. And I say that not because of just one verse in a psalm, because it's not just one psalmist who has this way. Turn to Jeremiah 9. We're actually going to be in Jeremiah 8 and 9 tonight, so you can turn there and you'll be staying there for the most part. Jeremiah 9, uh, verse 1, page 579. And Jeremiah is, is someone who embodies the same sort of attitude as the psalmist we see here. Jeremiah 9 and 1, Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were waters. And my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And Jeremiah served the Lord with a broken heart. He was called the weeping prophet because his heart broke over the plight and the condition of his people. Now, do you understand the plight of his people? It wasn't that there were just bad things happening at random. They weren't a persecuted people who were doing the best they could and bad things were happening. Jeremiah served, as all the prophets did, a, a sinful and a rebellious people. His heart broke at what they were doing, at the way they were living. He, his heart ached and his eyes leaked as he looked around him. Jeremiah's ministry was, was difficult. Right? Jeremiah's primary message was to a rebellious people, and the message was repent, turn to God, and stop doing those things that God hates. Now, the people responded then much as people respond now to such a message. They resented Jeremiah for bringing such a word to them. They rejected Jeremiah's preaching. And they often rejected Jeremiah in very personal and very painful ways. Despite the rejection, despite uh, the, the resistance, Jeremiah still preached his message and he still preached it with a broken heart. Now, the psalmist and Jeremiah, their hearts were broken for basically the same reasons. Their hearts were broken because God's name was being profaned through the people not keeping his word. And remember, the law 
was just for the people of God. People who had made a covenant with God to do His will. They had made a particular covenant. They would keep God's law and they would demonstrate to a watching world the greatness of their God by the way they lived. But they did not do that. They did not keep God's law. We know from like the prophet Malachi chapter 1 that when the people of God did not keep the word of God, it, it enabled the Gentiles, the other nations, to despise the God of Israel. They saw the way they rejected God's law. They saw the way they broke God's covenant. And what they did was they essentially said, your God is not important. If your God is not important enough for you to follow him, why is he important enough for us? He is irrelevant. And so God's great name was profaned in the world. And their hearts broke and their eyes leaped over that. Another reason their hearts were broken And their eyes leaked was because they knew the consequences for these actions. God's covenant with Israel had a series of blessings and cursings that went with it. The blessings was they kept the law. These are the things God would do to bless them, to show the nations how good it was to have a God like Yahweh. And then there were cursings that if they broke God's law, these are the judgments God would send upon them to show the people How serious it was to disobey a God like Yahweh. Now the the, the psalmist, he didn't see these consequences. He was kind of looking ahead. He knew what was coming because God's word is sure. Jeremiah, on the other hand, is not looking ahead. He's looking around. Look at the exact wording of chapter 9 verse 1. That I might weep day and night for the slain, the daughter of my people. Jeremiah, he saw it. The people were in the midst of the consequences. The the curses were coming to pass all around him. And he saw people suffering and dying and facing the consequences for rebelling and resisting against a holy God. And you and I, we should be like the psalmist and we should be like Jeremiah. Our hearts should be broken and our eyes should leak. As we see the lostness of the world around us. And our reasons for this are essentially the same as theirs. Our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak because God's name is rather continuously profaned in our world. People mock the idea of of God, of sin, Jesus, and of salvation. They treat the cross of Christ as a minor or unimportant or unreal event. They give their lives and their worship and their devotion to things which are not worthy of their lives and their devotion and their worship, as is the one true God. Cultural Christianity enables people to profess Jesus with their mouths, but deny him with their lives. All around us, people say they believe in Jesus. And yet there are no works in their life consistent with genuine repentance or faith in the one who has died and rose again. And so this cultural Christianity, it causes the unbelieving world to dismiss Jesus and the salvation he offers as irrelevant, unimportant, something that that bears no weight on their life. And thus Jesus and his great name is profaned 
in the world. Our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak at this. Our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak because we know the future. Not the immediate future necessarily, but the ultimate future. Hell is real and people really do go there. Not just random people out there somewhere, but people we see, people we know, people we love. If they have resisted and rejected the message of the gospel, they will die and they will face the sure and the severe judgment of God. Looking ahead at what's coming should cause our hearts to ache and our eyes to leak. And then finally, our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak because we see people suffering for their sins. All around us, we see people reaping what they've sown. They've sown to the flesh, and so they are reaping from the flesh a harvest of destruction. And because we also know what the Bible says, we know those who have yet to reap soon will. And so as we look at the world, we see people suffering for sin. Some are suffering for the consequences of their sin. Some are suffering because of the the consequences of others. Some are arrogantly going through life thinking they're okay, but they're soon to suffer the consequences of sin. Our, Our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak. Because of the misery caused by sin and rebellion in the world around us. Our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak because people do not keep God's word. They do not obey God's son. The thing is, when our hearts ache and our eyes leak over these things, we are very much like the Jesus we have given ourselves to. It says that when he approached Jerusalem... He saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known on this day, even you the conditions for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you, surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The way Jesus responds to the lostness and the rebellion of Jerusalem is important. He wept over it. As we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, it's important to keep the context in mind. These are people who deserve what they're about to get. They are going to reap what they themselves have sown. They have rejected God. And they are in that moment rejecting Jesus and they will continue to do so. In just a few days from his weeping here, the majority of the people in that city will cry out to the ruler of the city, the Roman ruler of the city, for them to let Barabbas go and to crucify Jesus instead. And Jesus knows all of this. He knows everything about what's coming, everything about their sin, all that they have done to deserve the judgment that's coming But he doesn't look upon them with arrogance and pride and say you're going to get what's coming to you. Rather, his heart breaks and he weeps over them. Now, the word for weep 
does not really picture Jesus sort of stoically standing there while a tear sort of trickles down his cheek. It pictures a a forcible type of crying, a a deep sob. In fact, the Amplified Bible explains he, he wept audibly. And so here we find the Holy Son of God nearly overcome with emotion and the emotion of sadness over the lostness of people who have rejected him and will continue to reject him. Over people who will in a few days call for his crucifixion. He weeps over them because judgment is going to fall upon them. May we be like Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes and, and pray now. And as we pray, pray for our hearts to ache and our eyes to leak for the sake of God's glory among the people. The people here, the people around the world. Pray our hearts would ache and our eyes would leak over the coming judgment. People we see, people we know and people we love will certainly face unless they repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray our hearts would ache and our eyes would leak at the suffering because of sin we see in our culture. This one I think is, I just want to mention this as an extra. Our culture right now is not a kind culture. And our culture, because our culture is not kind, it encourages everyone to be as unkind as the culture is. It is not a cultural thing to weep because people are getting what they deserve. The culture says rejoice. The people are reaping what they've sown. They're getting what they deserve. Feel no pity. Feel no sorrow for them. And, and we, if we're not careful, we can be influenced by that mindset and have the same sort of thought patterns as that. But we must understand we're not from the culture. We're something entirely different. We have been born again. We are children of the Most High God, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If his heart wept over the city that was recent, that was about to crucify him, our hearts should ache and our eyes should leak over the people we know who are, quote unquote, getting what they deserve. May God break our hearts and keep us from being like the angry, hard hearted world around us. May he make us like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come tonight and we pray for you to break our hearts over the things that break yours. 
Your word tells us you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but your pleasure, your your desires for them to repent, to believe. May ours be the same. May your spirit work in our lives and tenderize our hearts. So they are like Jesus's. That as we look at a city that rejects you, we look at the people who live in open rebellion, take no thought of you. People who do things we feel are stupid and wrong. When we see them and we see what they're doing, Father, our hearts would ache and our eyes would leak over those things. Father, when we see people suffering, reaping what they've sown, I mean, we can't, we don't want to get around that. Reaping what they've sown, they've made poor choices and they're suffering for their poor choices. They've made sinful choices and are suffering for their sin. But may our hearts take no pleasure in that. May our hearts rather be broken over that like Jesus. Protect us from the mindset of the world that we would not adopt a worldly, hard-hearted mindset towards people who suffer for any reason, even for their own sin. Father, let us be jealous for your glory among the nations. Lord, as we hear people mock you, as we hear people minimize you, as we see cultural Christians make it easy to people to make light of you, Father, let us grieve those things. Help us, Father, not to to make light of the sins of people we care about and think, oh, they're probably going to be okay. That our hearts ache when we see sin wherever we find it because we know the devastation and the judgment it brings. Father, we know what your word says about eternity, your sure return, the judgment to come. All those are not pleasant thoughts. Keep them on the forefront of our minds to an extent that they would tenderize our hearts. And Lord, we would ache and we would cry over the thought people we we see regularly, people we know, people we love, will die without Christ and face that awful judgment to come. Make us ever more like Jesus in all things. Tonight we pray it in in this way, in our hearts. In his name and for his sake we ask. Amen. And now what we're going to do tonight is look at some of the specifics of what broke Jeremiah's heart. And what made his eyes leak. So we can see some of the various ways. We see some of the, so we can see some of the various ways sins that work in the lives of others and the ways it should break our hearts. But I want to put them in the form of a prayer request so we can see how to pray for God to break our hearts. We're going to start in Jeremiah 8. So just turn, I don't know if you have turned in your Bible, maybe I do in mine. Jeremiah 8 verses 4 through 13. And we're going to start by praying God would break our hearts over backsliders. As we look at what God has to say to the people in these verses, we have to keep in mind God was not talking to pagans at this point. He is talking to his own people, people who had made a covenant with God to obey God. So look at what he says to them in verses four through seven. First, you shall say this, you shall say to them, this is what the Lord says. Do people fall and not get up? Does one turn away and not repent? Why has this people, Jerusalem, 
turned away in continual apostasy. They hold on to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have not spoken what is right. No one repented of his wickedness saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons and the turtle dove and the swallow and the crane keep to the time of their migration. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. People in Jeremiah's day had turned away from God and they refused to repent. They had no desire to turn back to God, even though they had been given ample opportunity to do so. Instead, they were like people who fell and refused to get up. They were like people who were going on a trip and took a wrong turn, but just just stubbornly kept going in that direction, thinking it would turn out okay in the end. That's what Jerusalem was like, he says. They had turned into continual apostasy. They had turned from God and they were just pushing hard into it. In fact, in verse 6, the end of verse 6, they had gone into it like a horse charging into battle. Right? So they weren't kind of timidly heading into this apostasy and in this backslidden condition and into rebellion. They were charging into it. They were happy to go to it. They were holding on to deceit. Now, what deceit were they holding on to? Well, I think part of the deceit they were holding on to is what we see in verse 11, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But they were people were saying peace, peace when there was no peace. They were charging into rebellion and there were people saying to them, it's okay. Live your best life now. Do what makes you happy. Live by your truth. And they were holding on to that deceit. They refused to return. They were speaking to each other, but they weren't saying what is right. Again, we were not given any specifics about what was not right, but part of it was probably in the encouragement to, to sin and to keep on in rebellion. Some of it was probably in some sort of what we might hear today of, well, the world has changed and God's word didn't mean what he clearly said and God could never have seen so far ahead to see a world like ours where all of this would be going on. But the people themselves were not saying the truth to one another. They weren't repenting of their wickedness. They, they had no thought what they had done wrong. They didn't care. Even the birds had enough sense to know the times and the seasons and when it was time to migrate. But the people of God did not have that kind of sense. They couldn't say, we have kept, we have made this covenant with God and the blessings we've experienced, but the curses will experience them as well. They should have known better. They should have had the sense of a person who falls down to stand back up again. They should have had the sense of a person who takes a wrong road and realizes they're wrong, who turns around, but but they did not. They just kept going further and further into their sin, rejecting his word and his prophets who called them to repent. The next few verses, God lays out some more specifics about his case against them. Verse eight and nine. They had rejected his word. How can you say we're wise and the law of God is with us? Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. These men are put to shame. They're dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Now, this one is it, this is fascinating. Right. They had rejected God's word, but notice they had not like tossed it aside. 
No, there is no Bible. God has not spoken. They didn't just know what they did. Instead, they said, we, we have. We have God's word. It has been given to us. We have this law. And there's, look at these, this pen of the scribes. Those were the religious leaders of the day. Right? Those were the, the scholars. They had written what we might call commentaries on what the law meant and how it was to be lived out. And the, they, had, they had God's word and the scribes have made it into a lie. So the scribes, said, the scholars of the day wrote down and said, well, well, yeah, God said this back in the days of Moses, but today it, it means this. Instead, the application would not be that, it would be, would be this. Then they had, and by doing this, what they had really done was they had rejected the word of God. Rather than just taking what God had said and saying this is what's right, they found somebody with a high theological education who could explain to them why God had said something was wrong was no longer wrong. Or why God had said something they ought to do was no longer something they ought to do. Thus they had rejected His Word. They were greedy and deceitful. Verse 10, Therefore I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. So, least to the greatest. In this case, the least to the greatest would refer to the common people and the political leaders. The prophet to the priest would refer to the religious leaders. So everyone, from the common people to the leaders, whether they be religious or, or civil leaders, were all liars and they were all greedy for gain. Essentially, they were all out for what was best for them. What would please me? What is better for me? What makes my life easier? Not what God said. Not what God is. What God says is right or wrong. That wasn't the point. What what gives me the most prosperity? What makes my life easiest? The most comfortable? That's what's right. That's what the people were doing, and their greed and their deceit. We mentioned this earlier. They told people everything would be okay when it wasn't. Verse eleven. They've healed the brokenness of my daughter, of the daughter of my people, superficially. Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. So if someone did ever maybe feel guilty about their sin, think, gosh, I ought to turn. Somebody was quick to come along and say, no, no, you, you shouldn't feel bad about that. You should live by your truth. You, you should be what God made you to be. This is just who you are. No, no, this is, it's perfectly okay to do the opposite of what God has said. Everything's fine. And they were like, oh, great, that's perfect. Verse 12, they were not ashamed of their sin. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not ashamed at all. And they did not know how to be ashamed. So this wasn't they were doing their deeds in the dark of night so no one would see. They were openly Doing whatever it was they were doing. Openly sinning and violating the covenant of God. They, and when people said, oh, you're doing that? Yeah, it's great. Life's wonderful. Now, to me, this is one of those things where you look at this and you can say, gosh, God's word is living and active. Because this could have been written yesterday. And been just as accurate. I mean, it, is, it would be no more accurate than it is. The pen of the scribes had caused people to reject 
the word of God. Yes, certainly we see that all over in the Amer- And this is again, we're thinking about it in the form of backsliders. So all throughout the American church, we definitely find the pen of the scribes, the theologians, the, the authors of books, those who have a platform the world will listen to, leading people to abandon the word of God, telling people what God has said is right is wrong, what God has said is wrong is right. Greedy and deceitful from the people to the leaders whether it be social leaders or religious leaders. We see that all over the place. People, most in our day, again, we're talking even within the church, would not see lying and greed as vices, much less sins. And, and, it's, and it's just as common, again, it's the people, it's politicians who profess faith in Jesus, it is People who are spiritual leaders. They told everyone everything would be okay when it wasn't going to be. Again, this goes back to the the lying pen of the scribes. But there's plenty of people in the world right now healing the brokenness, the daughter of God's people superficially, telling them peace and their sinful lifestyle. When there is no peace from the Lord himself. And people are not ashamed of their sin. People are not ashamed of their sin. Again, we're talking in the church. When you look at like statistics, statistically, the church as a whole largely has the same sexual ethic as the unbelieving world out there. They embrace the same mindset about sex before marriage, gay, gay marriage, about living together prior to being married. All of the ways the world views these things, the church has largely embraced these things. And because the church has embraced them, people live in these things. They claim to be Christians and they are not ashamed. They are not even remotely ashamed. It would never occur to them. They did not know to be ashamed. It would never occur to them. That they ought to be ashamed of the things that they're doing. So it's very applicable for us. But then there's also a consequence. In verse 7, the people don't know the judgment of the Lord. In verse 10, there's going to be a judgment and God's going to take their fields and take their wives. Then in the last of verse 12, they will fall among those who will fall. At the time of their punishment, they will collapse. I think the picture of they will fall among those who fall is this going to be a kind of an indiscriminate judgment. Right? Those who profess to be the people of God and are doing these things, they're going to fall in judgment. And those who just openly worship Baal and Moloch and don't profess to be people of God, they're going to fall in judgment. They're just going to fall in judgment together. The profession of being a person of God and not living for the God doesn't save. They're going to fall among the unbelievers, the pagans around them. Our heart should ache and our eyes should leak 
over those who profess faith in Jesus, but live in ways contrary to his word. They are not okay. They may say they're okay. They may feel they're okay. They may assure us that God is okay. The word of God has something different to say. They are not okay. God is not okay. And I would even go so far as to say the fact that they feel they're okay is a very dangerous sign. They are not ashamed of their sin. Judgment is coming. And they will face it. God's word is clear. A perpetual backslider is on the path to perdition. If anyone among you, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to believers. This isn't an evangelistic text to go out and reach the unreached. My brothers and sisters, those who are born again, adopted by God. If anyone from among you, from the church that he's writing to, strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned the sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Notice he doesn't say, if my brothers and sisters, if someone from among you strays and someone turns him back, he ensures that he gets multiple rewards. But he was going to heaven anyway. He doesn't. It doesn't give us the picture of people who turn and stray away, die in their rebellion, in their in their constant backsliding and their apostasy as it says here and then go to heaven but lose rewards that's not what it says it says if if someone from among us strays and goes away departs from the truth and we lead them back we've turned them from the air of the way and saved their soul from death what if nobody reaches out to them what if they're not turned back then they're going their soul is going to die. Listen, this doesn't refer to physical death. This is the picture that if a disciple of Jesus strays, God's going to kill them. And they're still going to go to heaven but with a loss of rewards. That's not the picture here. The picture here is that a perpetual backslider is in danger of damnation. And if they're not turned back to the way of truth, when they die in that perpetual, in that backslidden apostate condition, they will Go to hell. Our hearts should ache. And our eyes should leak. At those we know. Those we love. Who profess Jesus with their mouth. But live contrary to his word. Because they are in a dangerous. And a damning position. So let's take time and, and pray. For our hearts to break. And our eyes to leak over the backsliders and then pray for them to be restored.
Father, we love you. Lord, let our hearts ache and our eyes leak over the prodigals we know, prodigals we care about, the backsliders. Your word does not paint any sort of a hopeful picture for them outside of them repenting and being restored back into the faith. There is hope that they can be. Hope they can return. But not much hope in the condition they're at. Help us with this, Lord. Let us not find the ready pen of a scribe to tell us why a backslider is okay when your word has clearly said they're not. Let us not just look outside of what you've said and be confident in your word. And Lord, let our hearts ache and our eyes leak and let us plead with the prodigals to come home. Plead with the backsliders to turn and to stop their backsliding. Work in the hearts and the lives and the minds of the backsliders. Let them see they're going down the wrong path. And they need to turn around and go back to where they started and get back on the right path. Have your way, O God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Next, in verse 8 and 20, pray God will break our hearts at the urgency of the hour. It says, harvest is past, summer is over, we are not saved. This is a proverb about the tragedy of wasted opportunity. Now, I know very little, and by very little I mean nothing about farming. But I do understand that a farmer has a brief window of time. When the crops are ready to when they have to be harvested or they'll rot in the field. The farmer has to have a sense of urgency about harvesting the crops before it's too late. They must be diligent about going to them. They can't be lax in their efforts because there's urgency in bringing in the harvest. God had given them time to repent. And God had given them time to be saved from the judgment to come. But they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't return to the Lord. Judgment was coming. In this case, it was coming in the, in the way of Babylon coming to conquer them. And it seems they hoped salvation would arise from somewhere else. You know, very often, Israel would get themselves into a corner. God would promise a judgment to come. And rather than turning to God, as he said, and be spared, they would like reach out to Egypt. Come make a treaty with us and and save us from this other army. They'd reach out to Assyria. Come and and save us from this other army. And it seems that this is this parable is about something along those lines. They had tried to to find and hope that salvation would arise from somewhere other than God. So they would not have to, to repent and turn back to God. But summer and harvest had passed. Salvation had not come. They were not saved. And so all they could look forward to was the coming judgment of God. The lesson for us, lessons are many, but the lesson for us is praying for this tonight. 
is to understand there, there is a time when it's too late. There is an urgency in responding to the message of the gospel. And there is an urgency in the harvest of souls. The, the world out there, by and large, they're like Israel here. They're hoping salvation will arise from somewhere else. They're hoping their good morals will save them. They're hoping their kindness to strangers will save them. They're hoping the way they voted will save them. They're hoping a prayer they prayed when they were eight will save them. But salvation is not going to arise from anywhere else for them. And so for us, we know that. So there has to be an urgency with us in the harvest of souls. Because we know not only is salvation not going to arise from anywhere else, but to put it in these terms, summer ends way faster than you think it will. The harvest passes sooner than you imagine. Life teaches us. Life teaches us that people just suddenly die. People get bad reports. And, and, and even with that, and when I was, we, we think, right, we think someone gets a bad report, they're going to turn to Jesus. And they're going to be saved in that time. And, and I'm not saying they can't. Please don't hear me say they can't. They can't. But I was a hospice chaplain for about three years. For periods of time, I would visit three or four people a week in, in the Oklahoma Panhandle in Kansas. And do you know how many people that were unbelievers prior to going on hospice I was able to convince to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and be saved in three years? It was exactly zero. Oh well, I am what I am. It's too late now. It is what it is. So the reality is a bad test result doesn't necessarily soften someone's heart to that. There, there, just, there comes a time sometimes where it's too late. And then people don't even have to get sick. They can just suddenly pass. God, as God, has the right to call anyone into judgment at any time. And he is not unjust to do so. No one is guaranteed 80, 90 years. It could happen at any moment. I read this statistic and an estimated, it is estimated that over 30 million people worldwide die without Jesus each year. 30 million people. And of the over 300 million people in the United States, an estimated 41% have zero to do with the church of Jesus Christ. Not Easter not Christmas, not weddings, not funerals. That's a, that's a significant portion of our, our nation. But we don't have to get the nation at large. How many people within our community have nothing whatsoever to do with the church? It's a large number. And they are lost. And judgment is coming. The summer will be over far quicker than they imagine. Harvest will pass sooner than they think. And they are not saved. There is an urgency we should feel in this. 
The reality is they're not going to. I mean, they're, they're never going to unless the Lord's at work in their hearts and unless the Lord's at work in their lives. The natural bent is I have more time. Even if they even consider the idea of God and Jesus and salvation, the default leaning is I have more time. I, that's how I felt. I mean, the Lord started dealing with me when I was like nine, ten years old. And I can remember praying in church. I would be in church and... The Lord would be convicting me and I would be gripping the pew so hard not to have to go to the altar and pray. And I would be telling, I'd go to bed that night and I would tell the Lord, Lord, I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't want to be saved right now either. I'm going to join the army. I'm going to do some things I'm pretty sure Jesus don't want me to do. But I'm going to do them. Please don't let me die till then. I had time. Thankfully, I did. The Lord was very merciful to me. But not everybody has that. There should, there's an urgency we should feel about this. The old preacher Vance Havner used to say, The tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. We're living in desperate times. Desperate times demand a desperate feeling and desperate action. We live in a lost and a broken world which doesn't know it, but it's desperate for the good news of Jesus Christ. And every day we're given a day to live so that we can talk to somebody about Jesus, help them come to know Christ as their Savior. Yet the time will come when God brings everything to a close, whether it's His return or whether it's the end of life for us or the person we're hoping to reach out to someday. There is an urgency we ought to feel in our lives. So let's pray God would break our heart over the urgency of the hour. Let's pray. Father, your word frequently tells us to wake up and understand the times. To hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To be aware of what's going on in the seasons that we're living in. Help us to understand, as Paul said, the day of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The hour is urgent. In the world, the people we love, we're bothered by right now, they don't feel it, Lord. And so we have to feel it on their behalf. Break our hearts at the urgency of the hour. Break our hearts that the harvest is, is going to be past. The summer is going to end. Salvation would have not come to them. Let us feel the weight of this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And then finally, pray God will break our hearts over those destroying their lives. Chapter 8. 
verse 21 through 22. Jeremiah's broken over the brokenness, the daughter of his people. He mourned. He dismayed. Dismay had taken hold of him. He said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Jeremiah mourned with the sins of the people. The people were damaged. They were broken over the, not broken at their sin. They were broken because the judgment of God was falling upon them. The picture is they were basically barely staying alive. As Jeremiah saw this, he mourned. He was dismayed. One, something I read said the word for dismayed described a, a wrenching fit. And it sort of pictured Jeremiah convulsing in, in sorrow and in agony. And it said Jeremiah was like a parent watching a wayward child destroy his or her life through wrong choices. Jeremiah saw the people as his children. And as he saw them venturing down the slippery slope of self-destruction, sorrow overwhelmed him at the thought of what's coming. What made it worse was none of this had to happen. Verse 22, he says, is there no balm in Gilead? That's a metaphor that his hearers would have easily understood. Jeremiah was looking east toward the restful town of Gilead. Located in the mountainous region east of the Jordan River, north of Moab. It was famous for its healing ointment made from the resin of a local tree. Gilead, in many ways, was a symbol of hope. It was a city of cure. It was a place where there was a remedy. What Jeremiah was saying is it's tragedy. Is that this was happening to them because there, there was a balm in Gilead. The tragedy of their life being destroyed and all of these things falling upon them was the tragedy was it didn't have to happen. People could repent. They could turn back to God. There was a a balm for their wound, but they would not apply it. There was a physician who could heal their health. They would not go to him. They were needlessly and senselessly destroying their own lives. And that is our world right now. If we were to take time and write down, we could all write down large numbers of people we know. We don't even have to get on the internet and look on social media People we know, we love, we care about, and they are in this place. They are destroying their own lives. It is senseless because they could have it fixed if they would merely repent and turn to Jesus and be saved. But they will not. And again, the world the world is telling us not to feel bad for them. The world is telling us they're getting what they deserve. And we have got to fight the temptation to embrace the world's mindset. And I'm not saying y'all, I'm saying me. My dad always used to say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. 
I've said that more than once, seeing someone, their life blow up because of actions they've taken. Well, they played stupid games. They won stupid prizes. There was no brokenness in that. God, forgive me for such a self-righteous, sinful attitude. Man, as, as disciples of Jesus living where we live in the world, we have got to fight hard not to let the culture tell us how to feel about others. Because it is going to tell us not to care, not to be broken, not to be bothered. But God's word tells us something different. The example of Jesus is something different. Another parable or another time of Jesus looking over the city, wishing to gather them, but they would not. He sees the people from every walk of life, the path they're taking. And he knows that path of sin does not have a good ending. Despite the well-announced warning of judgment ahead, people continue in their sin. They are unrepentant and the clock is ticking and Jesus is broken. And that's the attitude we have to have as well. As terrible as it seems, perishing people will often resist rescue. Not everyone wants to be saved from the peril to come. Not everyone wants to abandon the course they're on. Not everyone wants to come to Jesus and apply the balm of Gilead. But even those who resist, even those whose heart, who rebel and push in, our hearts must be broken over them. There must not be glee or joy or happiness. For we are unlike our God and we are unlike our Savior when we rejoice at the fall. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel tells us. Who do we think we are if we would have pleasure in those things that God does not? Let's pray God would break our hearts over people destroying their lives. Father, forgive me for the calloused way I've often spoken of people reaping what they've sown, destroying their own lives. In those moments, I was very unlike you. I was very unlike Jesus, and I was very, very like the enemy and very like the world. I repent of that, Lord. Break down my self-righteousness. And let my heart ache. You know, it's easy, Lord, to look at people far away that I don't know. Feel bad for them. Let my heart be broken over them. But to see people that I know 
maybe don't like all that well. Make decisions that are continually bad. Push back against those who try to help. It's harder to feel broken over them, Lord. I don't want to be that way. Lord, I do want to have a heart for the the unreached always. But God, help me not to have a hard heart toward the people of Gaiman, the people all around me who are in similar situations. Break our hearts as we see people destroying their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to pray this way because God works through people whose hearts are broken and whose eyes leak. The Apostle Paul gathered the elders of Ephesus before he went on to Jerusalem and was arrested. He told them he had not ceased to warn them for three years with tears. That's one of the ways they knew he loved them. He cared for them. Tears, genuine tears in our reaching of others says more many times than our words can. I've told the story before, but I'll tell this story and we'll close with a passage. There was an evangelist um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s named Hop. It was back in the day before you could get in and easily get a, a leg. And he had one leg and he hopped everywhere he went and so they called him Hop. And he had a goal to reach a certain amount of people in his town for Jesus-specific people, not just ten, but these specific people. And one night he saw a guy that he wanted to reach and he hollered for him and the guy turned and started walking away and hop, hopped after him. Calling to him, calling to him, calling to him. The guy ignored him and kept walking away. The story goes that Hawk came to a stop a street light because it was late, and he stopped because he knew he couldn't catch the guy. And he laid his head against the street light and he just wept. And the guy heard his weeping, and he stopped. And he went back and he told him, he said, Hop, I could outrun your one leg, but I couldn't outrun your tears. God works through people whose hearts are broken. I like these verses and we'll close with this. Those who sow in tears shall harvest with joyful shouting. The one who goes here and there weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Will we seek God and let God break our hearts over the things we know breaks his? Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer.